That's life. That's life. That's what all the people say. This is our American stories, and all this week we're playing the best of the past year. Stories that you've told us are your favorites, and we're bringing them right back to you. We're going to spend an hour on the life of Frank Sinatra. Born this day in history. And what a life it was. He was an American original. Jazz, traditional pop, blues. It was all there. Singer, songwriter, actor, producer, director. He was one of the most popular and influential musical artists of the 20th century. And one of the best-selling music artists of all time. 1,400 recordings, 31 gold, 9 platinum, 3 double platinum, and 1 triple platinum album. He sold more than 150 million records worldwide and appeared in 60 movies. And we're going to spend the next 60 minutes, my goodness, we could spend the next two hours talking about the one and only Francis Albert Sinatra. I can't deny it. I thought of quitting, baby, but my heart just ain't gonna buy it. And if I didn't think it was worth one single try, I'd jump right on a big bird and then I'd fly. I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pie. The road leading up to Frank's birth was not paved with yellow bricks. On February 14th, 1914, Dolly and Marty eloped to Jersey City as Dolly's parents refused to host a wedding and did not approve of Marty. He was illiterate, inferior at boxing, and was Sicilian, whereas Dolly's family were from Genoa in northern Italy, the right side of the Italian tracks. The couple eventually moved to Hoboken, New Jersey. My mom and dad grew up minutes away in West New York, New Jersey. Sinatra was given up for dead at birth. The delivery of the 13-pound baby in his parents' New Jersey kitchen on this day in 1915 was traumatic. When he finally emerged, there were no signs of life. So the doctor put him to one side to attend to his mother, Dolly. It was only when the child's grandmother picked up the baby, ran cold water over him, and slapped his back that he started to breathe. This was how... Frank Sinatra's life began. Frank shared this story while speaking at Yale in 1986. As you will hear, he is still filled with appreciation. I was born in 1915 on December 12th, and I weighed uh, 12 and three quarter pounds. And when I was removed from her womb by a midwife, there was a problem. I didn't want to come out of there. And uh, they finally, they sent up a flare for a doctor. And upon removing me, I was uh, pretty well damaged of my left side of my neck and ear and face. And my grandmother, uh, who had more sense than anybody in the room, as far as I'm concerned, because she, <laughs> she knew what to do with me. And she stuck me under the ice cold water in a, in a, in a cold water flat and apparently uh, got some blood moving around and whacked me around a little bit. And uh, I have blessed that day, that moment, in her honor ever since. 
When Sinatra's mother was a child, her pretty face earned her the nickname Dolly, energetic and driven. Biographers believe that she was the dominant factor in the development of her son's personality traits and extraordinary self-confidence. Here's Frank again. I was the only child, yeah. and, and she was tough on me. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was very strict with me, my mother yeah. was, always strict. She's told me to stay away from the railroad tracks because a kid, one, one time, one day, a kid lost an arm. About three years later, another guy, a little guy lost his leg. And uh, if she found out that uh, I was down there in the railroad tracks, she'd whack me around out of fear. Mm-hmm. Out of fear. I think the first thing that I was ever conscious of was a drive that she had all the time. Her constant seeking was to do better, to constantly do better. Do better. When Sinatra was young, being an Italian-American was being the object of bigotry. You were part of a minority group, one that was stereotyped as being either comical or absurd. The organ grinder with the monkey, or the dangerous and threatening type, the guy with the Tommy gun. And Sinatra, growing up in Hoboken, knew that guy with the Tommy gun was real. In those days, there were sayings. In order to be an attorney or an accountant, you had to be a Jew. In order to be a singer, you had to be an Italian. In order to be a prize fighter, well, you had to be Irish. Which is why Frank's father took the name Marty O'Brien. Because Italians were not welcomed in the fight game. Furthermore, Italians were considered lower than the Irish in Hoboken. Marty broke his wrist after 30 professional fights. But his well-connected wife, Dolly, got him work as a fireman. While still a captain in the fire department, Marty and Dolly opened a tavern during the Prohibition era called, what else, Marty O'Brien's. In 1920... When prohibition of alcohol became law in the United States, Dolly and Marty were allowed to operate openly by local officials who refused to enforce the law. It was in this bar where Frank saw his future. Here's Sinatra. They had in the bar a piano with a, with a roll in it. They put, they put a nickel in it and would play the songs. And uh, occasionally one of the men in the bar would pick me up and put me up in the piano and I'd sing with a roll. And it was a horrendous voice. Terrible. I mean, it was like a siren. You know, honest and truly, I'm in love with you. Way up there like that. It's a wonder I ever got anywhere starting that way is what kills me. (laughs) So, one day I got a nickel or a dime, whatever it was, and I said, this is the racket. This is what you got to be doing. This is what you got to be doing. And when we come back, you're going to hear more about this extraordinary life, the many contours, detours, ups and downs, because it was not all up. My goodness, there were probably more downs, and you won't believe them, and he always came back. And always, always, there was that, well, there was that loneliness. And we're going to dig into that loneliness when we come back. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories for the hour, the life of Frank Sinatra. And this is a part of our best of wrap-up of the year, the very best segments from the arts to history, well, to music, just about everything. And these are the ones you've told us are your favorites. I tried so not to give in. I've said to myself this
Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you this is our American stories, and all this week we're playing the best of the past year. Stories that you've told us are your favorites, and we're bringing them right back to you. This is Lee Habib, and this is our American stories. And for the hour, we're talking about the life of Frank Sinatra. And we left off at that bar, his dad's bar. And it turns out Frank was not only attracted to acting, but all of the performance arts. Hoboken had uh, about six movie theaters, really one mile square. And every time I saw somebody, I wanted to be them. I wanted to be a ventriloquist. Then I saw jugglers and all that kind of stuff. But I was still thinking about singing. I never lost that thing about singing back here. And um, I went to see performers. I mean, not anybody famous until I saw Bing. Until he saw Bing, and that's Bing Crosby, of course. And Crosby was the first great pop singer in America and the first white singer to completely internalize the innovations of jazz, which he got directly from the great Louis Armstrong. Sinatra, who idolized Bing, decided to become a singer. He said, quote, That's exactly what I want to do. I want to be like that. Here's a very young Frank sounding more like Bing than what we've come to know as old blue eyes. But one thing's indisputable. He had a measurable potential, and his peers noticed. I like New York in June. How about you? I like a Gershwin tune. How about you? I started singing more in school with the uh, dancers on Friday nights. Every other Friday night, we had to dance in the gymnasium. And people would say to me, hey, you're pretty good. And that began to register in my head. How about you? Frank's mom took notice, too, although she was not so receptive. Well, I first discovered it when he didn't want to go to school anymore, outside of uh, just going into these glee clubs all the time. Uh-huh. How old was he at the time? At the time, he was about 16. Uh-huh. And uh, naturally, the principal sent for me and said he was just taking up space. Taking up space. Well, Frank decided to drop out of high school. And here's Frank on the resulting family crisis. Oh, it was disastrous. Absolutely disastrous. My dad, you know, who never had uh, too much of a formal education, was terribly disappointed. He, he just couldn't understand it. I pleaded with him. I said, you've got to give me a chance to, to, to work on what I want to do. And he said uh, something about, uh, sure, chance, chance. He said, ten years from now, he said, you'll still be looking for chance. You'll be a bum, he said. You'll be a bum, he said. By the way, how many dads have said, said that to their kids? And it didn't work out. It was 1936, and Frank's singing career was going nowhere. His father's bum prophecy was beginning to become a reality. Here's Frank on his father's response. He, at this particular morning, said to me, uh, uh, why don't you just get out of the house and go out on your own? Is really what he said, you know, get out. And uh, I think the egg was stuck in here for about... <laughs> 20 minutes, I couldn't swallow it or get rid of it anyway. My mother, of course, was nearly in tears. and uh, but, but we agreed that it might be a good thing. And then I packed up a small case that I had, and I came to New York. Now, as a young man in New Jersey, New York 
might as well have been Oz. And this is hard to understand, folks. I know that part of New Jersey. And it's right there on the Hudson River, directly across from Manhattan. I mean the Empire State Building you can see from the piers and docks of Hoboken. But these kids, these working-class kids, didn't think that was their city. The magic city that he looked at from just a few thousand feet across the way just wasn't his home. But Frank's move to the Big Apple offered nothing but dead ends. So the prodigal son attempted to move back home with his parents. How did his father respond? Well, here's Frank. About that point was the Christmas that came that I went home. And I thought my old man was on 24-hour shift, but I had the day screwed up. He was off 24 hours, and he was at home. And I brought two presents over to leave them there, because he didn't speak to me for a long time. He wouldn't talk to me. And uh, he met me at the door. And, uh, of course, it was a great homecoming. He started to cry, and I was teary, and it was just marvelous. But Frank couldn't stop pursuing his passion. Several months after the Christmas incident, a musician friend of mine told me there was a joint called a Rustic Cabin and they were forming a new band and they were looking for a boy singer. I went up and auditioned in Englewood Cliffs, up near the George Washington Bridge. Got the job at the Rustic Cabin. Shortly after that, we got word that the WNEW Dance Parade was going to pick up the Rustic Cabin every night of the week, 11 to 11.15 or 11.15 to 11.30, whatever it was. Frank earned a measly $15 a week at the Rustic Cabin. But his father began to see the fruits of his son's passion. Suddenly, uh, my dad became the proudest man in the world. You know, he, he couldn't wait to tell anybody, everybody or anybody that I was on a 15-minute dance remote program from New Jersey in some roadhouse somewhere, you know. And they'd all sit around the radio and listen at 11 o'clock at night for 15 minutes. And in those days, I couldn't sing my way out of a paper bag, but they thought it was a big star, you know. Anybody got on the radio in the early days of radio was a very big star. You bet. While Sinatra never formally learned how to read music, he had a fine, natural understanding of it. And he worked very hard from a young age to improve his abilities in all aspects of music, even while he was earning some success. On his night off, Frank would take his girlfriend, Nancy, out on dates. Actually, it wasn't technically a date. It was a business. Frank would use his one night off to see people in the music business. Here's Frank on one of those nights that yielded a huge payoff. That's when I ran into uh, one of the men in the music business who said to me, uh, listen, he said, why don't you take some lessons? And I said, what kind of lessons? He said, vocal lessons. He said, you know, guys do that. I said, well, uh, where do you find these guys? He said, there's a guy up over the brass rail, which he said, the restaurant. He said, his name is Quinlan. He said, he's an old drunk. He said, he used to be at the Met, and he got kicked out of the Met. And he said, you ought to go up and talk to him. So I went up, and he was surly. I think he was hungover anyway. He said, uh, who are you, and how long have you been singing, and uh, why do you want to be a singer, and all that kind of stuff. I said, well, I'd like, I'd like to be a singer because I feel that uh, I have an idea about singing. Oh, he said, you already got an idea. He said, why do, we, why do you need me? I said, no, what I mean is I just need some direction. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do. If you can handle $3 a week, he said, I'll give you three lessons a week. And I started three lessons a week. And I couldn't wait to get there every, every time I had a lesson. I couldn't wait because I knew that I was learning something. He was teaching me the proper way to sing. I still use the same exercises, and then I developed some of my own. Thanks to those bedrock vocal lessons from that drunk John Quinlan, Frank's rocket began hearing a countdown.
Now I was on the air twice, once at night and one in the morning. And I got fan mail. And I'd get little postcards, two postcards, three postcards, and girls would write to me, you know, penny postcards. And I'd go and look in there right away and see if I, how much mail did it get any bigger. Never got any bigger. People began to hear. It was 1939. Frank was 25. He just married Nancy, left the rustic cabin to play with the world-famous Tommy Dorsey Band. Here's Joe Stafford, who was a backup singer in Dorsey's band. We were just sitting on the bandstand when Tommy announced this new singer. Out on the stage walked this very skinny, unprepossessing-looking young man, and I thought, wow. Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely nights dreaming. He sang about eight bars, and that whole theater became so quiet, you could have heard a pin drop. You just knew that you were hearing something quite unique. You knew you were hearing something quite unique, and indeed you were, and you are. And this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when we come back after the break, we're going to continue with this extraordinary life, the life of Francis Albert Sinatra, on this day in history, 100 years old. Those fingers in my head and on the back end of this, we're going to get into the, the guts of Sinatra's career. The way he got under a song, the way he got under the skin of a song. This is Lee Habib again, Our American Stories. You can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and catch all of our stories. We'll be back right after this. And more of our best of of the year from Our American Stories after these messages. Wicked witchcraft And although I know it's strictly taboo When you arouse the need in me My heart says yes indeed in me Proceed with what you're leading me to Here we all work long the Mississippi Here we all work while the rich folk play Pulling them This is our American stories and all this week we're playing the best of the past year Stories that you've told us are your favorites, and we're bringing them right back to you. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Frank Sinatra singing the great Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein, Old Man River from Showboat. When we picked off, we found out he had just gotten a gig with Tommy Dorsey, and Dorsey gave Frank one of the biggest platforms to stand on in the entire music business. But... As multi-Grammy and Academy Award-winning songwriter extraordinaire Sammy Kahn and Frank himself disclose, it's this, that Dorsey gave Frank something even bigger than a gig, something that would shake Sinatra's iconic vocalizations. Tommy Dorsey 
had this incredible, incredible breath control. Without breathing against. I could never see him breathe. 16 bars at a time, I wonder how he does that. If you can visualize, a trombone player holds the mouthpiece. He was breathing in the corner of his mouth. And that was my theory. Do not break a phrase if you can do that. And keep the audience listening for the rest of the phrase. Here's music critic John Lahr on Sinatra applying the breath control he learned from Dorsey. He would be able to sing four lines of that song. There was a seamlessness, a smoothness, and not one person is looking at anybody else. And they are completely under the spell of Sinatra's story. My stardust melody, the memory of love's After this, Frank's career took off. Sinatra mania was in full effect. He signed with Columbia Records in 1943 and was one of the most recognized men in the country. Frank had his struggles, though. He divorced Nancy, got remarried in 1951 to actress bombshell Ava Gardner. But shortly after his marriage to Ava, Frank's singing career began to stall. His marriage was failing and his popularity it was crashing. Frank took to the bottle. Here's Sinatra himself recalling a, recalling a remorseful New York City night. I became an out-and-out drunk. I mean, I was bombed all the time. So God bless Tootsie's. I never paid a damn Tootsie's. Drink up, drink up, all you people. So at 4 o'clock, of course, this night, he ain't there go. He said, you better go home. Order! Now, he was on 52nd Street. I was staying at Jimmy's 57th Street. I walked out, and it was like 20 degrees. Have fun. So I started walking, and I'm walking, walking. Suddenly, I don't know where the hell I am, because the booze really hit me. It really hit me like a sledgehammer. And the next thing I knew, there was a flashlight in my eye, and somebody was shaking. And the light's on. You're going to have to get out of here. Come on, get up. And the cop grabbed my arm, and then he looked at me. You Sinatra? The cop was not the only one to witness Frank's drunken distress. Here's Frank's closest friend, Sammy Davis Jr. I was in somebody's car in New York. We stopped our light and I saw him coming past the Capitol like this. Walking down the street, coat collar, a hat, and was alone. It was the first time I'd ever seen him alone. And nobody was stopping him and nobody was doing it. And nobody cared. And nobody cared. Frank hit rock bottom. It was 1953, and a film about the attack on Pearl Harbor called From Here to Eternity was being cast, starring acting legends Burt Lancaster, Donna Reed, and Montgomery Clift. Frank lobbied hard for the part. I spoke to uh, Harry Cohn, who was then the head of Columbia Pictures, and uh, I said, I'd like to play that. He said, well, he said, you've never done a dramatic role. You're a guy who sing and dance with Gene Kelly. And I said... But that's the kind of thing I think I can do. Ironically, it was his rocky marriage to Ava that got him the part. Here, Frank's daughter, Tina, daughters, Tina and Nancy Sinatra Jr., detail the phone call Ava made 
to the contentious president of Columbia Pictures, Harry Cohn. Their marriage was not going swimmingly, but he had to get back on his feet. She knew that better than anybody. She placed the call to Harry and said, You know who should play Maggio, don't you? That son of a husband of mine. (laughs) It's pretty funny, yeah. (laughs) It worked. They tested Sinatra and he got the part. It was perfect for him. All he had to do was make the audience laugh and cry at the same time. A very hard task for the most seasoned actor, but a skill Frank had been successful with throughout his singing career. But this was acting, not singing. The execution was completely different. Like he had done in the past, Frank went looking for direction. He got it from the director of the picture, Fred Zinneman. Here's Frank. In one time in Honolulu with Freddie, I said, must be something missing in my script. It went from scene number 162 to 164. And he said, well, do something, you know. What would a drug do at the bar? And I said, well, drugs do a lot of things at bars. Bar senator, whiskey. Large whiskey. Excuse me. Hey, buddy. Sam. Hey, coming out, fellas, the Terry Gimbel's basement. Stand back there now. Here we go. Seven for daddy. Five deuce. Hey, seven. Snake eyes. (laughs) That's the story of my life. (laughs) Frank got paid a pathetic 8,000 for eight weeks worth of work. It didn't matter to him. He was as hungry as ever, and his passion showed up on the big screen. I think what made people enjoy it and like it was my inner love for doing it and wanting it and needing it so badly. On March 25, 1954, Frank was nominated for his role in From Here to Eternity with an Oscar. They opened the envelope and... The winner is Frank Sinatra. (laughs) Frank was back on top again. But what he did immediately after receiving his Oscar is far from the usual all-night celebrating. Here's Frank's daughter, Tina Sinatra. I think that everybody was disappointed there wasn't some extended celebration. He wanted to be with himself. He said, I just went home, parked the car, and I walked. I walked. Now this is not terribly surprising. After all, Frank was the poet laureate of loneliness. His songs were haunted by it, and for all of his fame... Frank loved solitude. Frank and Ava soon divorced, and a few years later, he wed a young actress named Mia Farrow. He or she is offering a very unique look into the man, his persona, and his music. The way I saw it, there was this person that was so, so shy. You can see it in pictures sometimes when you see him looking at me. We were both shy people. So there was this Frank, and then there was another version. In Las Vegas, these people who would show up, I didn't know them from anywhere else, and they came and they called women broads. They only related to each other, the men. They told jokes and they drank and they gambled. And I I did meet mafia people. If the evening went on late enough, he might just say, let's go to London. And he would call his pilot, and next thing we'd be in an airplane. I learned to bring my passport to dinner. Before he made a record, or before he opened in Las Vegas, he would stop smoking for six weeks. And 
He wouldn't drink. He wouldn't smoke. I remember he, him telling me that he would never sing um, songs that were popular at the time. What kind of fool am I? And he said, I would never sing that song. He said, because uh, I, ca I can't sing what I can't feel. I can't sing what I can't feel. That's part of the reason we were attracted to Frank, I think. This time His voice was always confiding something. He wasn't busy emoting. He was busy connecting. And this gives his voice its extraordinary sympathy and relatability. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we can't come back more with Frank Sinatra. Can we make one? Can we make one? When I was seventeen This is Our American Stories, and all this week we're playing the best of the past year. Stories that you've told us are your favorites, and we're bringing them right back to you. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we're spending the hour on Frank Sinatra. And you're listening to him singing one of the great Capitol recordings. It was a very good year. And unlike most of the singers we hear on the radio, Frank was confessing to us. And this always gave his voice extraordinary sympathy and relatability. He sounds the way you would sound if you could speak the things you feel, if you dared to. It was a very good year. It was a very good year for city girls who lived up the stair with all that perfumed hair. And it came undone. On January 24th, 1969, Frank lost his father. Like many Americans, Frank had been silently strong through the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, his brother Bobby, and then Martin Luther King. But when his father died, something in Sinatra snapped. Here he is sharing a story about his father who struggled to share how proud he really was of his son, while literally behind closed doors, his father was beaming with pride for his son. My father loved me if possible, more than my mother, but he never showed. He never wanted to, to open up with me. He was a terrible introvert. For instance, I went to the firehouse when I appeared at the Paramount. I said, my dad around, he said, uh, we think he's upstairs. Won't you when I came up, he was standing in front of the door of the locker, shaving. Some speed, follow my lead. As I approached him, he apparently saw me and slammed the door. But I had already seen in the mirror 
This thing was full of clippings that he had been saving. Or had guys cut out a bag of the five and cut them out of magazines and save them for him. Downbeat and metronome and newspaper clippings. Won't you tell her please to put on I could have wept when I saw it. Speed, follow my lead. Oh. He loved my success, but he but he never mentioned it. He never, we never talked about it. In 1978, Frank turned one more song into a standard with New York, New York. Sinatra actually had two hits called New York, New York. The first was in 1949 from the film On the Town and was written by Leonard Bernstein. Thirty years later, Sinatra cut the theme for Martin Scorsese's 1977 theatrical bomb, New York, New York, but Sinatra turned it into his signature song and his onstage closer. He also angered the lyricist by customizing the words, adding the climactic phrase, A number one. Here it is. I want to wake up in a city that never sleeps And find I'm A number one Top of the list, king of the hill You almost can't cut it there, can you? <laughs> Here's culture critic Terry Teachout on the significance of this song. What is touching about it is this is a man who, in his youth, looked across the river and saw his dreams. And now, in his late middle age, in his old age, he sings a song about having achieved those dreams. Radio host Jonathan Schwartz was at Radio City Music Hall for Sinatra's first public performance of New York, New York, here's what he saw. I was present at the very first moment that he sang it publicly. It was during the Yankee Dodger World Series of 78, and he was playing Radio City, opening night. He turns to the conductor and says, what's the first line? He said, start spreading the news. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York Frank had successfully arrived at Oz and Oz of course being that big city right across the river right across the Hudson River New York City and what got him there in the end it's that ability to get under the skin of a lyric and to relate to the ordinary, everyday American, and particularly to the lost, to the lonely, and to the loser. Here's an intro to the great Hoagie Carmichael song, I Get Along Without You Very Well. I think it says it all. We shall call this next segment Songs for Losers. These are songs of unrequited love and Girls running away from home and all that kind of jazz. I get along without you very well. And when Frank got to Oz, what he saw behind the curtain, well, we do not know. One thing seems apparent. Frank found meaning, pleasure, and deep satisfaction 
by touching those who listen to his music. In a 1963 Playboy interview, Frank said this, quote, Whatever else has been said about me personally is unimportant. When I sing, I believe. I'm honest. If you want to get an audience with you, there's only one way. You have to reach out to them with total honesty and humility. This isn't a grandstand play on my part. I've discovered, and you can see it in other entertainers, when they don't reach out to the audience, nothing happens. You can be the most artistically perfect performer in the world, but an audience is like a woman. If you're indifferent, Ensville. That goes for any kind of human contact. A politician, on television, an actor in the movies, or a guy in a gal. That's as true in life as it is in art. Well, we're going to close out with the group's favorite here at Our American Stories, the one that we think represents and manifests what we just read so well. The great Harold Orlin and Johnny Mercer song, One for My Baby and One More for the Road. Drinking, my friend, to the end of a brief episode. Make it one for my babe And one more for the road I got the routine Put another nickel In the machine Feeling so bad Can't you make the music Easy and sad I could tell you a lot But you've gotta be True to your code Just make it one for my baby And one more for the road You'd never know it But buddy, I'm a kind of poet And I got a lot of things I'd like to say Frank Sinatra's favorite toast was, May you live to be a hundred, and may the last voice you hear be mine. He didn't make it to a hundred, but the business of Frank Sinatra is still going strong. All you need to do is listen. His voice is still heard in restaurants, bars, airports, and other public spaces all over the world. Frank has solidified as recordings continue to prove nearly two decades after his death at 82 that he is one of the most recognizable voices in history. It was, after all, why they called him The Voice. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, The Life of Francis Albert Sinatra. But this tour 
much that I found It's gotta be drowned Or it soon might explode So make it one for my baby And one more for the road The long It's so long The long Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look. This is Our American Stories for the hour. We're going to spend some time talking about the life of Gene Wilder. You know him from his work in the movies, and he passed earlier this year. And this last week here on Our American Stories, we're celebrating the lives of some of the greatest artists that we lost this past year, and Gene Wilder was among them. And after he died, we decided to do an hour celebrating his life, and we bring that to you now, once again. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the great Gene Wilder sing Pure Imagination from the 1971 movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And for the next hour... We're going to celebrate the life of this great actor who starred in so many of our favorite movies over the past 50 years. From the producers to Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein and so many others. Gene Wilder, stage actor, screen comic actor, and by the way, nobody did comedy better. And it's the hardest, hardest aspect of acting. Any actor will tell you this. Getting people to laugh is no duck walk. He was a screenwriter, a film director, and my goodness, he can interpret a song too. You just heard it. And an author as well. He was born Jerome Silberman on June 11, 1933 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the son of Jan and William Silberman, a manufacturer and salesman of novelty items. His father was a Russian Jewish immigrant, as were his maternal Grandparents. Wilder first became interested in acting at age eight when his mother was diagnosed with rheumatic fever and the doctors told him to try and make her laugh. Here, Gene talks about that time in his life. When I was a, a little boy, I mean seven or eight, my mother had a heart attack and the doctor said, don't ever get angry with your mom because you could kill her. Make her laugh. And that was the first time I remember consciously trying to make someone laugh. And I did. I made her laugh, and my criterion was if I could make her pee in her pants, then I knew I had done something funny. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it, I, I don't, I'm not saying it for a joke. It's very true, I, because she'd say, now look what you've made me do. But, uh, but little boys and, and grown men are confident of what they do in life because of, of what their mothers told them that they were good at. And when I knew I could make my mother laugh, 
I felt I could make someone else laugh. And that's all I'm doing now, is carrying on the tradition. Indeed. At the age of 11, he saw his sister, who was studying acting, performing on stage, and he was enthralled by the experience. He asked her teacher if he could become his student, and the teacher said that if he was still interested at age 13, he would take Wilder on as a student. The day after Wilder turned 13, he called that teacher, who accepted him. Wilder studied with him for two years. Here, Wilder talks about his earliest influences as an actor and how he discovered his approach to being a comedic actor. When I was growing up, um, I heard Danny Kaye on a record before I ever saw him, before Up in Arms, and I thought that's what I'd like to do. Then I saw Up in Arms. But then when I was in junior high school, I started to, uh, my idol then was Sid Caesar. Unbeknownst, well, I didn't realize that Mel Brooks was writing most of the material, so I got to know Mel before I even knew him. But uh, then I saw Lee J. Cobb in Death of a Salesman on Broadway, and I realized that he was doing something different from what I had thought I wanted to do. It didn't mean that I didn't want to yeah. be in comedy, but I wanted to approach it in a different way, through character, instead of just stepping on banana peels and mm. making funnies. Indeed, and that's when the best comedic acting occurs. When his mother felt that Gene's potential was not being fully realized in Wisconsin, she sent him to Black Fox, a military institute in Hollywood, where he was bullied primarily because he was the only Jewish boy in the school, according to his own account. After an unsuccessful short stay at Black Fox, Wilder returned home and became increasingly involved with the local theater community. At age 15, he performed for the first time in front of a paying audience in a production of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Gene Wilder graduated from the Washington High School in Milwaukee in 1951. Here, Gene talks about how he went from the name Jerome Silberman to Gene Wilder. I had just gotten into the actor's studio, which was a, a big thrill for me. And I didn't want to be introduced as Jerry Silberman. I couldn't picture Jerry Silberman in Hamlet or Macbeth or something like that. And I had to think of a name overnight. And um, my sister and brother-in-law had a friend who's the fastest talker I've ever met. And he started with A and worked his way up through the alphabet. When he got to W, he said, Wilder. And I said, that's the one I want. And then for the first name, it was because of uh, Thomas Wolfe's books, uh, the fir- Look Homeward Angel. And the hero's name was Eugene, but everyone called him Gene, who loved him. And the web and the rock, and you can't go home again. It was always Gene. So I put the two together, and then I was introduced by Lee Strasberg as Gene Wilder. Because there, Ely Kazan and Shelley Winters and Rod Steiger and Paul Newman, and uh, I didn't want them to say, Jerry, what's your name, Jerry or Gene or what? So that's how it started. And we're going to hear more about this great life story, but what good luck on his part to land in New York at the actor's studio at that time. Lee Strasberg, who, if you remember, plays a remarkable part in The Godfather and is one of the great acting coaches in American history, teaching some of the great actors today that we all love and teaching them a certain methodology of acting called The Method. Some loved it, some didn't. But my goodness, the ones who lived by it gave us some of the finest craft ever. And in the end, it's what made Wilder so good. He, he decided to become the characters. And then we laughed, but he wasn't. And this, you see, even in Seinfeld to this day, that style 
which is the, they're not slipping on banana peels. They're in character. George is in character. We just find that character hilarious. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You're going to hear about Gene Wilder's life in his own words, a remarkable American life, which we celebrate here on Our American Stories. Jerome Silberman becomes Gene Wilder, and we'll pick it up right there after these messages. This is Our American Stories and more of our best of of the year from Our American Stories after these messages. This is Our American Stories, the life of Gene Wilder. Following his 1955 graduation from Iowa, he was accepted at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School in Bristol, England. After six months of studying fencing, Wilder became the first freshman to win the all-school fencing championship. No small feat. He was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1956, and at the end of recruit training, he was assigned to the Medical Corps and sent to Fort Sam Houston for training. In November of 57, his mother died from ovarian cancer. He was discharged from the Army a year later and returned to New York. A scholarship to the HB studio allowed him to become a full-time student. At first, living on unemployment insurance and some savings, he later supported himself with odd jobs such as a limo driver and fencing instructor. Wilder began his career on stage and made his screen debut in the TV series Armstrong Circle Theater in 1962. Although his first film role was portraying a hostage in the 1967 motion picture Bonnie and Clyde, Wilde's first major role was as Leopold Bloom in the 1968 masterpiece The Producers, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. This was the first in a series of collaborations with writer-director Mel Brooks, including 1974's Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, which Wilder co-wrote garnering the pair an Academy Award nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. Here's Gene Wilder talking with Larry King about the moment he met Mel Brooks and how Mel Mel introduced him to a screenplay called Springtime for Hitler. I was in a play called Mother Courage by Bertolt Brecht, starring Anne Bancroft, whose boyfriend was Mel Brooks, and Mel came by to pick her up each evening after the show. And I was having trouble with one little section in the play. And he said, he gave me tips on how to act Brecht. He said, that's a song and a dance. He's proselytizing about communism. Just skip over that. Sing and dance right over it and get on to the good stuff. And he was right. That's the irony. And I did. Then he said, would you like to come to Fire Island with Annie and me? Uh, I'll read you the first 30 pages of a movie I'm writing. And I went to Fire Island We went fishing on the surf, came back, had dinner, and then Annie and I sat down and he read 30 pages of Springtime for Hitler. That's what it was called then. And then he said, would you like to play that part of Leo Bloom? I said, absolutely. He said, all right, all right. 
So don't take anything in the fall without checking with me. September came and I was offered One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Not the movie, the play with Kirk Douglas. So I called him and I said, I feel a little silly, but you said, yeah, 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 yeah. Can you get a four-week out in your contract? I said, no one knows me. I can't. No, they said, can you get a two-week out? He said. I said, maybe a four-week, because I'm not a star. All right, we'll have to live with it, he said. Three years went by. I never heard from him. I didn't get a telegram. I didn't <laughs> get a telephone call. And I'm doing Murray Shiskal's play called Love on Broadway. Matinee, taking off my makeup. Knock, knock on the door. I open the door. There's Mel with a tall stranger. I said, Mel. <laughs> he said, you don't think I forgot, do you? <laughs> Classic. Wilder goes on to describe how Mel Brooks introduced him to Sidney Glazier and Zero Mostel. He said, this is Sidney Glazier, our producer. We're going to do Springtime for Hitler now. He said, but I can't just cast you. You've got to meet Zero first. Tomorrow, 10 o'clock, my heart was pounding. I got to the office door of Sidney Glazier's office. The door opens. There's Mel. He says, come on in. Z. He called Zero Z. This is Gene. Gene, this is Z. And I put out my hand tentatively. And Zero grabbed my hand, pulled me to him, and kissed me on the lips. <laughs> and all my nervousness went away. And then we did the reading, and I got the part, and everything was fine. Yeah, try that sometime, folks. Here's Gene Wilder and Zero Mostel from an early scene in The Producers, where Leo Bloom... The accountant, played by Wilder, throws an absolute fit when Max Bialystok, played by Zero Mostel, the producer, takes away his little blue blanket. May I speak to you for a minute? Go. You have 58 seconds. Well, and glancing at your books, I noticed that in the columns... You have 48 seconds left. Hurry, hurry. <laughs> oh, uh, I glanced at your books, I noticed in the... 28 seconds. You're running out of time. Mr. Bialystok, I cannot function under these conditions. You make me extremely nervous. What is that, a handkerchief? Nothing, that's nothing. It's nothing. Why can't I see my blanket, my blue blanket, give me my blue blanket. Oh, no, 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 I find it very comforting. <laughs> oh, the physical performance by Gene Wilder is as good as the verbal. And Buster Keaton would be, well, looking down from heaven and just thinking, wow. In 1971, Wilder auditioned to play Willy Wonka on Mel Stewart's film adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Wilder was initially hesitant when he learned about the role, but finally accepted it under one condition. Here's Gene Wilder with that story. I'd read, read the book, and Mel Stewart, the director, came to my home in New York. And he said, you want to do it? I said, well, I'll tell you, I'd like to do it if I can come out and all the crowd quiets down, and I'm, I'm using a cane. Oh, my God, Willy Wonka is crippled. And I walk slowly, and you can hear a pin drop, and my cane gets stuck in a brick. And I do, I fall over on my face and do a forward somersault and jump up 
And they all start to applaud. He said, what do you, Mel Stewart said, what do you want to do that for? I said, because no one will know from that point on whether I'm lying or telling the truth. He said, are you saying you won't do the film if, we, if you can't do that? I said, that's what I'm saying. Okay, let's do it. And I meant it. He did mean it, and that's why Gene Wilder is Gene Wilder. Yeah, because that's not in the book. It is not in the book. When Woody Allen offered him a role in one segment of everything you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask, Gene Wilder accepted. Everything, the movie, was a hit. It grossed $18 million in the United States against a $2 million budget. Here is the scene from that film where Wilder plays a doctor whose patient informs him about his love for a particular barnyard animal. Come in, Mr. Milos. Come in. Sit down right over here. I just want to get some history on you first. So, your name is... Stavros Milos. And your address? Armenia. Armenia. I am from Armenia. I am visiting my brother. I see. Um, occupation? Shepherd. A shepherd? My whole family. Except for my brother over here, who is a rug salesman. Mm -hmm. Have you had any major illnesses? No. None. Good. So. Now, what seems to be the trouble? I'm in love with a sheep. I beg your pardon? <laughs> I am in love with a sheep. <laughs> oh, I see. See, doctor, up there in the mountains where I tend my flocks, it's so beautiful under the starry skies, and I am alone. And sometimes it gets so lonely, and the hours pass. And soon I desire a woman. But, doctor, there are no women. I'm not married, and... Well, one night last summer, I saw her. Her? Daisy. Sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and how Gene Wilder plays this, how straight he plays it, is just one of the hardest things to do in comedy, and it's what made it so good. He just played the part. And, you know, sitting in front of me is a, a book called True and False by David Mamet, the great playwright and acting coach. And he continually says again and again, just do the words. Just let the words do the work. It's not about you. It's not about your performance. Let the words do the work. And let the character be revealed through the words. Actually, it sounds real simple. But you heard Gene Wilder in that conversation about a prior movie and his artistic decision. And you're hearing it again and again in each of these clips. You know, he plays the accountant and the producers, and he just plays it straight. And that's why he's so damn good. When we come back, young Frankenstein and beyond. This young actor becomes a mature and seasoned actor, and pretty soon, an internationally famous one. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Story, celebrating the life of Gene Wilder. And more of our best of of the year from our American stories after these messages.
And you're listening to some of the theme music from Young Frankenstein. We're talking about Gene Wilder, his life. We're celebrating it here on Our American Stories. And after everything you always wanted to know about sex, Woody Allen's movie, Wilder began working on a script he called Young Frankenstein. Here, Wilder talks about the creation of that script, the casting of the film, and trying to get Mel Brooks on board on the project. I went back east, and it was uh, March or April, and I had a little place in West Hampton Beach, Long Island. And after lunch, I took a, a yellow legal pad and a blue felt pen, and I wrote Young Frankenstein on top. And then for two, two pages, I thought, what could happen to me if I suddenly found out I was an heir to Beaufort von Frankenstein's whole estate in Transylvania? And I finished the two pages. I called Mel. I told him, well, he says, cute. <laughs> it's cute. That's all he said. And then later on that summer, Mike Medavoy, who was my agent at the time, you got anything for you and Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman? I said, well, what made you think of that company? He said, because I now handle you and Peter <laughs> and Marty. I said, well, with a wonderful artistic basis. Uh, as it happens, I think I do. Send it to me. I said, no, give me another day or two. And I wrote two more pages. The Transylvania Station, almost verbatim the way it is. And it put an ending on it. Trap 29. Yes, yes. And uh, Mike Medavoy called me and said, I think I can sell this. What do you think about Mel directing? I said, yeah, I'd love it, but you're whistling Dixie because he won't direct something he didn't conceive of. Now, you have to remember that Mel spent two years on the producers and made $25,000 a year. He spent the next two years on the 12 chairs, $25,000 a year. Neither one made a penny. Joe Levine made money, but yeah. Mel didn't. They were offering him 250000 or 25000 or whatever to direct this. And he said yes. He called me. He said, what are you getting me into? I said, nothing you don't want to get into. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Next day, they said, we signed Mel. Having just seen Marty Feldman, and by the way, that's the actor who played Igor on television, Wilder was inspired to write a scene that takes place at Transylvania Station where Igor and Frederick meet for the first time. The scene was included in the film almost verbatim. Dr. Frankenstein. Frankenstein. You're putting me on. No, it's pronounced Frankenstein. Do you also say Froderick? No, Frederick. Well, why isn't it Froderick Frankenstein? It isn't. It's Frederick Frankenstein. I see. You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced Igor. But they told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they? Of course. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh, sorry. I, uh, you know, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I'm a rather brilliant surgeon. Perhaps I could help you with that hump. What hump? <laughs> what hump? Young Frankenstein was a huge success, with Wilder and Brooks receiving Best Adapted Screenplay nominations at the 1975 Oscars, losing to Francis Coppola and Mario Puzo for their adapt adaptation of The Godfather Part Two. 
Shortly after Young Frankenstein, Wilder and Brooks set out on another film called Blazing Saddles. Here, Gene talks about how he was nearly cast for another role. I wanted to uh, play the Waco kid, the part that I did play. And Mel said, no, 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 I want to, you're too young. I want an over-the-hill alcoholic. I got Dan Daly, who's going to play it. He wanted me to play Harvey Corman's part. I said, I'm all wrong for this. And um, six weeks went by. Dan Daly begged off because he had just finished some tel- directing something. So they got Gig Young. Gig Young got into the costume, makeup, on the way to the jail cell, and foam started coming out of his mouth. He was on the wagon suddenly and withdrawing. And Mel thought he was acting, you know, some method acting. He said, good, keep doing what you're doing. And, uh, and then he passed out. And Mel said, it's a sign from God. He called me from the, s- the phone on stage. He said, can you come tomorrow? I said, I'm supposed to go to London to do uh, The Little Prince with Stanley Donnan directing. Beg off. The next day I was on a plane, and the next day I was hanging upside down in the jail cell. And here's Gene Wilder introducing himself as the Waco Kid from this scene in Blazing Saddles. I don't know if you ever heard of me before, but I used to be called the Waco Kid. I was just walking down the street, and I heard a voice behind me say, Reach for it, mister. And I spun around, and there I was, face to face, with a six-year-old kid. Well, I just threw my guns down, walked away. Little bastard shot me in the ass. (laughs) So I limped to the nearest saloon, crawled inside a whiskey bottle, and I've been there ever since. In 1975, Wilder's agent sent him a script for a film called Super Chief. Wilder accepted, but told the film's producers that he thought the only person who could keep the film from being offensive was Richard Pryor. Pryor accepted the role in the film, which had been renamed Silver Streak, the first film to team Wilder and Pryor. They became Hollywood's most successful interracial movie comedy duo. Here, Wilder talks about that chemistry he had with Pryor, and how they always found it easy to improvise with each other. I hope this comes out right, but it's a little bit like sex. You know, when you, <laughs> when you meet someone and the chemistry is there, you don't know why, you don't know how, but it's there. I met him the night before we did our first scene. We hugged, we did the first scene, and he said something and I said something, and it wasn't in the script after the camera started rolling. And it went very well. And I, he said, did you know you were going to say that? I said, no. Did you know you were going to say that? He said, no. I never improvised in a film before. In, in classes I did, but not in a film. But with him, I always improvised. Because if you don't, you're not going to be anywhere. Not with Richard. In 1980, Wilder teamed up again with Richard Pryor in Stir Crazy, directed by Sidney Poitier. Pryor was struggling with a severe cocaine addiction at the time, and filming became difficult. But once the film premiered, it became an international success. Here's Gene Wilder talking about his approach to acting, the choices he makes, 
and his thoughts on show business. I studied for altogether maybe 18 years. I got accepted into the actor's studio. I would approach doing Leo Bloom in The Producers in the same way as I would do Death of a Salesman. But the choices would be different. I would make comic choices. But the acting process, create a human being who's real, not only to the audience, but real to me. And so I, I think if you want to say the, uh, you're a method comic actor, yes, without getting into what method is, but uh, a Stanislavski comic actor, yes, because I'm trying to do it the same way I would. I don't, I don't mean this to sound, uh, I don't want it to come out funny, but I don't like show business. I love acting in films. I love it. I like the show, but I don't like the business. And when I go to a restaurant and they're talking 3.6, 9.8, and how many, what the budget, and, the, and everyone is a, a writer or a director or an actor or a producer, and it, it just makes me nervous. And that's Gene Wilder talking about his craft and the business. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories and the quintessential American story of Gene Wilder. More after these messages. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes, or cutaway coat, perfect fits. Dressed up this is our American stories. And was there anything Gene Wilder couldn't do? We learned that he worked for and with Sidney Poitier, and they became fast friends, working together on a script called Traces, which became 1982's Hanky Panky, the film where Wilder met comedian Gilda Radner. And that was in August of 1981. It would change his life. When filming ended, Wilder found himself missing Radner, so he called her. The relationship grew, and the couple married in September of 1984 in the south of France. Anyone who knows the story of Gene Wilder knows about the deep connection he had with Gilda, whose life was tragically cut short by ovarian cancer, that same cancer that took Gene's mother. Here together, Gene and Gilda talk about their relationship shortly before her passing. To me, it's irresistible. A funny man is irresistible more than any looks, more than any... She anything. was always a sucker for a big a, laugh. A sucker for a laugh. I, I'm the best audience. She is my teacher because she tells the truth more than I do. When I am faced with a really tough one where I, I get hurt, I withdraw into what Gilda calls a dot. Dot man. And she <laughs> will lambast me until I have the courage to get angry with her, respect her enough to get angry with her and let her have it, not in order to punish her, but to say what's truly on my heart, what hurt my feelings, because if you harbor it, it comes out in another way. But if you say it at the time, it's gone. Five minutes later, it's gone. Maybe the next day. <laughs> or possibly in three years. But it does go yeah. away. Twelve years ago, it wouldn't have worked. At this minute right here, 
now specifically, yeah, we're happy. I'm, yeah, we're happy. Yeah. Here, Gene Wilder talks about keeping romance alive in a relationship that's been going on for a few years. I feel very strongly from my own experience and from what I've seen in the world that when it hits that way, that classic way that we hear about, it's not sex that men are looking for when they have a good woman, children, it's adventure. They want a reaffirmation that they're a man. So they, they think that they'll find it by conquests. And if, if husbands and wives or, or people who are living together can keep alive the romance in their relationship, so that when the egg is running down the corner of your mouth in the morning and the breath isn't quite so good, or there's a little toothpaste on the side of the whatever, you know, after two, three, four years of that, you start to think of, well, where's the romance in my life? But couples can keep romance in their lives. Wilder explains how Gilda kept him grounded and got his attention, ultimately changing his life. Gilda was different in this respect. She said... Uh, I'm here for a purpose, and that's to get you to wake up and smell the coffee, not be off in the clouds someplace, listening to Mozart or Jacques Brel, but to be here with me. And when you feel anger or you feel something on your mind, you say so right now, here and now. I'm not a perfect woman that you've been searching for all your life. I'm just little imperfect Gilda. And if that's what you want, a real love, I'm your best bet. And that changed my life. Wow. Here, Wilder talks about Gilda's untimely passing and the misdiagnosis of her cancer early on. She kept seeing doctors, and they said, no, everything's okay. What are you worried about, they would say. And she would say, I'm worried I have cancer. Well, it's nothing life-threatening, they said. And she used to complain that they don't believe me. They don't believe me. If she had been diagnosed nine, eight, seven, six months before, um... I'm not telling you that I know, but I would bet my bottom dollar that she'd be alive today. I thought she was going to pull it out. I never thought she would die. Never. And sometimes she would grab my hand and look at me, stare right into my soul and say, really? Really? And I'd say, if I could live as long as you're going to live, I'd settle right now. And I meant it. I thought that I would die before she did. I thought she would make it. After her death, Wilder spent several months researching cancer and contacting experts to figure out what went wrong, why his wife wasn't given a simple test that would have detected immediately whether she had ovarian cancer. In May of 91, he testified before Congress advocating for patients. Then he co-founded Gilda's Club, a nonprofit organization with local chapters all over the United States which provides social support for cancer patients and their caregivers. He also gave Radner's name to the Ovarian Cancer Research Program at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. In this clip from the 2003 compilation Voices for Gilda, a tribute to benefit the Gilda's Club organization, Gene Wilder shares a short, touching tribute to his deceased wife. The song Ohio is a number from the 1953 musical Wonderful Town. Gilda and I used to sing this little song by Leonard Bernstein from the musical Wonderful Town. We sang it for our closest friends at intimate little dinner parties when everyone was supposed to get up and do something. I was always nervous getting up and doing something, but Gilda and I sang this song 
and it made us feel better. Once in a while, we even sang it alone at home when we were feeling a little lonely. Why, oh, why, oh, why, oh, why did I ever leave Ohio? Why did I wander to find what lies yonder when life was so cheery at home? Oh, wandering while I wander, why did I stray? Why did I roam? Oh, why, oh, why, oh, did I leave Ohio? Maybe I'd better go. Oh, H-I-O, maybe I'd better go home. Wilder spent most of his time painting watercolors, writing, and participating in charitable efforts. In 98, he collaborated on the book Gilda's Disease with oncologist Stephen Piver, sharing personal experiences of Radner's struggles with ovarian cancer. Wilder himself was hospitalized with non-Hodgkin lymphoma in 99, but confirmed in March 2005 that the cancer was in complete remission following chemo and a stem cell transplant. Wilder died at the age of 83 on August 29, 2016, at home in Stamford, Connecticut, from complications of Alzheimer's disease. He had kept knowledge of his condition private, but had been diagnosed three years prior to his death. Jordan Walker Perlman the nephew child of the legendary actor, wrote this statement to honor the special person in his life. And I quote, It is with indescribable sadness and blues, but with spiritual gratitude for the life lived that I announced the passing of husband, parents, and universal artist Gene Wilder at his home in Stamford, Connecticut. It is almost unbearable for us to contemplate our life without him. The cause was complications from Alzheimer's disease, with which he coexisted for the last three years. The choice to keep this private was his, in talking with us and making a decision as a family. We understand for all the emotional and physical challenges this situation presented, we have been among the lucky ones. This illness pirate, unlike in so many cases, never stole his ability to recognize those that were closest to him, nor took command of his gentle, central, life-affirming core personality. It took enough, but not that. The decision to wait until this time to disclose his condition wasn't vanity, but more so that the countless young children that would smile or call out to him, there's Willy Wonka, would not have to then be exposed to an adult referencing illness or trouble and causing delight to travel to worry, to disappointment, or to confusion. He simply couldn't bear the idea of one less smile in the world. He was 83 and passing holding our hands with the same tenderness and love he exhibited as long as I can remember. As our hands clutched and he performed one last breath, the music speaker, 
which was set to random, began to bear out one of his favorites, Ella Fitzgerald. There is a picture of he and Ella meeting at a London bistro some years ago that are among each of our most cherished possessions. She was singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow as he was taken away. This is Our American Stories, the life of Gene Wilder. place behind the sun Just a step beyond the rain Somewhere over the rainbow Way up high There's a 